welcome to Michelson Alexander Explains. This is the second episode of our special COVID-19 recovery series. Today, we are speaking to Paul Guerra. Paul Guerra is the CEO of the Victorian Chamber of Commerce and Industry. This is Victoria's peak business group that uh, is made up of members of all sorts of business across Melbourne and Victoria. And it's his job to represent those interests to government and publicly. Now, he took the role on in February 2020, and he could never have imagined what was going to lay ahead. In this episode, we talk about COVID-19 recovery, the Victorian roadmap, what the restrictions have meant for business in Victoria and how Victorian business will approach vaccine uptake. Now, usually you can see Paul on a news grab, on a 30-second news grab on TV or radio news, but in this episode, we actually dig a little bit deeper and find out more about the communication that goes on between his group and also the members of his group to find a way through, which has always been the one of the most controversial elements of this pandemic. So now, please welcome Paul Guerra. Thanks, Paul, for joining us. First, before we get into the the detail of what you've been doing over the last 18 months or so, you started as the Chamber CEO in February 2020. You also had COVID not long after that. Is this anything like you think you'd signed up for? No. no. (laughs) So safe time is everything, all right? So you're right. February uh, 2020, um, I remember talking to my president about, you know, what the role was going to be and, I had, um, uh, and I still have a really good friendship with Mark Stone, and he sort of encouraged me to go through the process. And then at the other end, he said, oh, you'll love it. Of course, I think we had two normal weeks and then this thing called um, COVID hit and I was like, man, what is going on? Um, but look, we, we jumped in and, and you know, recognised that that business needed a voice, needed, needed you know, to be represented. And you know, I'm fortunate that when I look at my history, um, it's kind of all um, tied into this. So, you know, 17 years with Motorola, you know, one of the world's great multinationals in its um, time. It gave me a technology um, piece. It also gave me a sense of Asia Pacific, but importantly, some global connects. Um, I then worked at Vodafone and got an understanding of retailers very much at that point. Um, And then I spent five years as the managing director Asia Pacific for United Health Group, which is the largest company that no one's heard of. Um, They're about 200 billion US annual turnover each um, year, seventh largest company in the world. Um, And all they do is in health. So, and then from there, I, I chaired the Queen Victoria Market Board and I was the CEO of the Royal Agricultural Society. So, I think Royal Melbourne Show. So, that gave me the community uh, feel. And here I was landing in a role that, that needed to think about the community, needed to think about small business, needed to think about medium business, large business, and multinationals, and needed to think about um, innovation um, from not only technology, but across the board, but then access to governments uh, as well. And, and through all the roles, every part that I had sort of came to fruition um, in this role and has been for the last 18 months. COVID was kind of just the icing on top to go through the full immersion um, so that yeah, I came out the other end um, happily. It took me a while to recover uh, from it. It was the sickest I've been, but you know, it helped me understand you know, what the virus was about. Trust me, I didn't want to get it. Um, I still don't know how I got it, um, but I did. Fortunately, I lived to tell the tale. And I think you mentioned there your past experiences in other sectors and there's a lot of stuff there that's about engaging with the people that you're representing. So when COVID hit and you're obviously then responsible for putting a message out on behalf of the business community, how did you make sure from that very initial stage to right now 
that that message is reflective of what your constituents, I guess, are thinking? Yeah, it's a great question, um, Jack. And we thought a lot about this. And um, if we got it right, it's because of the approach that we took. So first of all, we recognised who we were representing um, and we were representing our members, our members that are, that are paying the bills you know, for us to exist as an organisation. Um, so we spent a lot of time uh, talking to them um, and still do. Um, you know, I talked about you know, the experience I've had in business. So I've got a lot of friends, not only here, but internationally that are in business um, as well. So I was able to find what was going on in other parts of the world. You know, this morning I've spoken to a, a mate of mine who's in LA, for example. So each week I'm getting snippets from someone out of Singapore, someone out of the UK or someone out of the US to find out you know, what is going on. And, and I'm on the board of a company in the Netherlands, so I get an update from them um, as well, so on a weekly basis too. Um, but we we quickly worked out that we needed to be organised and prepared. So for the last 18 months, we've, we've effectively been running um, as a campaign uh, office in our media side. So um, at the height of it last year, we were caucusing every morning, um, and I think that was 6.30, and we shifted it depending on, on where it was, 6.30 a.m., um, it was my head of policy and advocacy, a um, guy called Dougal Murray. Um, Dougal's moved on and it's now Dylan uh, Broomfield who fills that role. Um, and my media um, team, it's now Chanel Pearson, who is now my chief of staff, but also you know, sits in as the uh, media as part of her. So we would come together and, and work out, okay, what's our narrative for the day? Um, and sometimes it's it's A, sometimes it's B, sometimes it's actually we're quiet today. We, we just don't see the need uh, to jump in. Um, and then once a week, we would have a separate meeting where we would go and plan ahead, you know, where do we need to go? Um, and then we go and get the, the evidence from our membership base to inform that decision in terms of where do we need to take the narrative? Because if you look at where we've been over the past 18 months, We've tried to play a role of optimism. Uh, we've tried to play a role of realism, and we've tried to play that that piece that sits between the business needs um, and helping the government understand that, and then vice versa, helping the government message hit um, into our membership base as well, and and just providing that that simple matter of fact um, commentary. We made a decision early on that um, we, we're, we will continue to be apolitical. Um, we, we draw a line down the middle and made sure that we would stray only from that line a maximum of you know, 20% either side. Um, we wanted to be respectful, but you know, we needed to speak out when we needed to. We were never going to be personal about it. We were going to highlight the issues and stay on those issues rather than get to a motive um, through it. And you know, the, the feedback is it's 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 worked well. Um, my, my counsel, everybody, this doesn't happen by accident. We were planned. We're still planned. I'll natural, but I've got a good background in business so I can talk to the issues. Um, but we do spend a lot of time thinking through what it is that we're going to say and how we're going to say it. There's lots that to, to dive into there and deep dive into, which we will through the chat. But first of all, you talked about setting the narrative each day and, and being ready. I'm sure during the whole time you've you've had stories from members, you've had members on the phone saying to you, this is happening or we can't do this or we've got this issue. How important has it been to have members tell their stories in a public sense to illustrate what you're trying to put across? There's two parts there, um, Shannon. The first um, thing is I need to understand 
what their issue is um, before I can advocate on behalf of them. And there are some members that are happy to talk publicly. Um, but in in this day and age with the, the rise of social media, um, it, it's some people fear speaking out for the backlash they're going to cop on, on social media. So a lot of them were saying, we don't want to talk about it. We don't want to go public, but we want you to have the story so that you can reference it when you're talking to the media. Um, so I made myself available um, to our members. I made myself available to friends that were in business who were also members, and I made sure I was accessible because the the, the best thing I can do is, is be relevant with the issues and the information um, so that I then have a choice. Do I do, I do this publicly um, or do I do it privately with the state um, or federal governments or do I do both? So a lot of what I talk about um, publicly, um, I've already passed that on to either state or federal government so that, you know, th- there's no surprise in in terms of where we're going. I, I, I don't see the need to use uh, the media as as the, the baton, if you like. I see, you know, the media plays a really important part in, in the communications part, but equally, we've got to be active and we can't just be lazy and expect the media to do our work for us. We've got a job to do with with various people, you know, inside of government um, as well as outside of government as well. Most of the talk of Melbourne at the moment is about the government's roadmap. It's very obvious to us in kind of researching with this episode that you guys actually have your own roadmap as an alternative to the governments. And I guess from a from the perspective of creating your argument, how important is it to actually provide that alternate policy, not just so that people know what you're advocating for, but also so government know what you actually want? Yeah, this comes from my business lens. You know, business owners and business leaders don't wait for something to happen. And I've done it because I've ran um, major businesses. We're thinking about what's coming, what's going on, and what could impact our business. You can only do that if you have an effective team as part of your organisation that are doing the day-to-day running, which then frees me up to think about where the organisation needs to go. Managing through COVID has been no different um, through that. And and this role has been thinking about, okay, what's coming next? It's why I spend so much time talking to people outside of the organisation. It's why I spend so much time talking to people um, internationally about um, what is coming. So our narrative the whole way through is, has been really clear. There's times where we've agreed with the government and there's times where we've disagreed with the government, and that's state and uh, federal. But at all times, we've put alternates up because it's, it's my view, you're not here to just complain. You're here to make a difference. You're here to represent the members. And if the view from one group you disagree with, then I think you have the responsibility to put an alternate up so that you're referencing why you don't agree. It was interesting because that was some of the feedback that came from uh, Treasurer Palace um, last year. It was like, you didn't always agree with us, um, but we appreciated that when you didn't, you told us and you gave us an alternate. He said there were many, many, many that didn't. And that's something that I reflect on and go, yeah, we did, and we'll continue to do that as well because there's no, this is a one in 100-year pandemic. There isn't a right or a wrong way. We'll understand that in the rear view mirror. So it's about using the intelligence that we've got and the resources that we've got to help inform what is the best way forward for you know, our constituents, our members. That's interesting where you talk about it being 
measured, as in if we're going to criticise or we're going to be critical of something the government's done, we need to have something constructive to put forward. I think in industry bodies it's always difficult to balance that with sometimes an angry member's want for that sugar hit of go out and whack the government. How do you manage that balance to say that we don't want to just get something to make you happy today, we're doing something that's going to make you happy in six, 12 months' time? Yeah, so I I'm, I'm make the point, um, Shannon, that I'm here to represent uh, the members, and that's not just for today, but that's long term. There's no point us standing up and and getting to a position where the, the governments, either state or federal, won't engage with us. Because um, if we're at that point, we can't represent our members. So it's got to be respectful along the way. Um, I've learned this through this role that um, it's a bit like a golf shot. You know, a golf shot is there's something in it for everybody. If it's a good shot, it's good for the person that's played it. If it's a bad shot, it's good for the person you're competing with. It's no different here. The feedback comes thick and thin. Um, no matter what I say, it'll it'll draw either praise or criticism. Um and that won't just be from our members. It'll be from you know, state governments, oppositions, federal governments and oppositions, which is why it was important that we, we set the compass right from the start and we stick to that compass uh, along the way. We've got to make, I've got to make sure that, that every night I can lie in bed to say I represented our members today and I did as good as I could. Uh, we put the case forward. You know, we're going to win some in in colloquial terms and we're going to lose some. But at least I know tomorrow I can get up and I can represent the members again. There are obviously no winners in a, in a pandemic. Like the reality right now is that everyone is losing. So I guess when we talk about what you guys are lobbying for, I think it seems to me that it's it's very subtle adjustments to that seesaw of how much we open up versus how much we shut down. Like it's you're not asking for us to just completely get rid of restrictions. So I, I guess one of the questions that I'm really interested in is how you weigh all of that up and then, you know, how much do you actually think about the health advice in coming up with the, you know, the recommendations that you're providing to government? How do you kind of factor that into the equation when you're obviously lobbying on behalf of business? And I think a lot of people see them as these kind of polar opposites who need two completely opposite things. Yeah. So we think about it a lot because it's a balance and it's a balance of of business, community and health. In, in terms of, if I look at a continuum, on, on one end of the continuum is the absolute public health. And on the other end of the continuum is, you know, if I call it February 2020 or business as usual. Um, now, we would argue that neither approach would have been right um, over the last 18 months. Uh, we would argue that the right approach has been to try and strike the middle. Um, and that's to try and balance, you know, health, um, the community and business because eventually we're going to get out of this um, and we can get out of it with um, something intact or nothing intact. It's not not just about getting out of it with everybody being alive and healthy. It's about making sure that communities and businesses are healthy as well. We still think that um, we're playing in the half closest to public health. And so what we're wanting to do is bring that back to the centre and have that centre for a period for a, a period where things stabilise, and they will, before we move back to what you know, the new February 2020 is going to become, which is probably going to be sometime through um, next year. Um, the way we do it is is we do factor in the, the public health. Um, we, we do listen to you know, what we're hearing out of um, our health department, what the Premier is saying, what the federal government is saying, and there's been some good interventions along the way from, from both. Um, but I step beyond that. 
Um, I was lucky that I worked for the world's largest health organisation. One of the people that I worked for um, has just finished rolling out the United States vaccination program, working directly for President Biden. So I spoke to him. His name's Andy Slavitt. Um, and so I got some insight from Andy in terms of, okay, what were you seeing over in the US? What comes next? Um, what should we be looking out for um, over here? And we factored that in. We looked at what, what has worked in uh, Victoria in terms of coming out of lockdowns. <laughs> we're pretty good at this. We've, we've come out of it five times, so we kind of know what we're doing. Um, the National Cabinet uh, Framework um, was helpful in terms of 70% double and 80% uh, double vaccinated uh, people in terms of guidance. So we mapped where we'd been previously with previous um, restarts coming out of lockdowns against that 70 and 80%. And we used a variable at 80% sing, uh, single dose because we thought that could be a good incentive to actually help drive through to 80% double um, and beyond. And if you look at what we've done, it's very straightforward in terms of you will recognise all the parameters because we've lived through all these parameters before. And we think after six times, we don't need something new. We know what's worked. So let's apply that to the template. It so happens that New South Wales had released their uh, roadmap, which was a little less aggressive than where we were, but along similar lines. Um, so we we had a position then that, that when they released theirs on the same day we released ours, they were uncannily close, um, which was also heartening for us to say, well, we're on the right track. Now, we're sympathetic to the, you know, the potential um, rise in hospitalisation. of a unique experience in the COVID in, in terms of I was lucky I didn't get hospitalised. Um, sadly, my son got uh, COVID from me as well, but he was the only one out of my two children and wife in my family that, that, that got it. Um, so we know that the potential risk. But we also know that we've got a great health system um, here. And we also know that the state bought, I can't remember, it was either um, 2,000 or 4,000 ventilators and appropriate PPE equipment um, last year when we we're in that flatten the curve phase. So our view has always been that we've got the equipment. Can we set up some temporary emergency hospitals? I know there's a room at the showgrounds because I helped build it um, last year, which would make a great uh, temporary ward. All we then need is some um, health staff to be able to man that as well. And, you know, either we get them from interstate or we import them from overseas. So what we're seeing, though, is that the modelling in, in different parts of the world, um, the actuals have never been as extreme as what the model um, showed. And that's what we're hoping for here as well, which while we'd still come back to 70% double, 80% double, they're the targets for now. Let's hurry up and get there. That roadmap, which even the early days of last year of our first lockdowns, you were you were quite vocal on wanting a roadmap. Um, you talked a little bit about planning and how you work. I see this as trying to bring a message of business that in business you have to plan Therefore, we need a roadmap. Has that been the Northern Star, everything you've been trying to communicate that business needs to plan? Yeah, correct. It's that certainty piece. You know, we don't wait for the end product to adjust. So if, if you're building something, you don't get to the end of it and go, oh, gee, gee, I wish that was red instead of green. Or, gee, there's a fault in that. Um, we'll wait till we've got the finished product and, and find that there's a fault there. In business, there's checks along the way before you get to the end. And there's a reason for that. You want to catch the fault before it becomes too deep into the process. And that's why we believe so strongly in planning. And that's why we pushed. I'm glad you picked it up, Shannon. That's why we pushed for a roadmap 
um, back then is because we needed what is it that we're shooting for? What's you know, what's the journey that we're on? What are the markers? Let's get them telegraphed so that everybody can line up. There, there was anger sort of spreading across different parts and that roadmap actually helped bring all that anger um, and subside because people would say, oh, now we know what we're after. Okay, we've got to get to this and this and this. Now, the first iteration of the roadmap, uh, we're happy to get um, we we're happy to get the markers. We thought the markers were unrealistic and, and we said as much and we, we, we said why, but at least we then had a roadmap. And it's the same with this one. We now know what the roadmap is. We don't think the markers are right. We, we think when we look at New South Wales and Victoria and New South Wales are separated by the Murray, why are the readings so different one side of the Murray to the next. And if you looked at the landmass of Victoria and New South Wales together, we're less than Queensland, we're less than South Australia, we're certainly less than WA. So if you took our landmass and applied it in those jurisdictions, there would only be one setting. So our view was, given we're four weeks behind roughly where New South Wales are, business talks to business, right? And we talk to other businesses, sometimes they're our competitors because we want to learn. Our view would be we want governments to do the same, particularly through this pandemic, because there's a lot we can learn. And so you've kind of mentioned there, like you can, we can argue and talk about where the markers are set and what happens when we reach those vaccination targets. My question for you is when you're encouraging people to go and get vaccinated, because we can we obviously want to hit the 70% and then the 80% double dose target, how do you think that businesses should approach the challenge of asking people to get vaccinated for their benefit? Is there kind of a playbook that you would shoot from? Yeah, have your honest conversation. I mean, where do you sit on it as a leader? You know, I've always been um, big on you, you have to be yourself every day you turn up to work. So as a leader, where do you sit on it? And if if I was somebody that wasn't open to being vaccinated, uh, I couldn't say what I said. Uh, and my view is the 70 and 80% targets are there. Um, I've been, I've had COVID and I've been double vaccinated. So they, they, they tell me I've got some sign of uh, supercharging in there now. Um, those that are hesitant, go and get the advice, but don't get the advice off Facebook or social media. Go and talk to your doctor. Go and get the real advice. We we hosted a session with the Doherty Institute last night and there'll be a recording available of that um, on our website. For anyone that's hesitant, go and listen to it. There are experts out there that will give you the insights as to what's there. It's again, when I spoke to Andy Slavitt, he said, so tell me, mate, what about the, the vaccines? He said, I'll give you this simply, Paul. He said, taking a vaccine is better than not. He said, don't worry about the brand on it. They all work because they all will keep you out of hospital and they'll certainly you know, all stop you from getting gravely ill. So just take the first one that you can get. So that's a simple message for us. Go and get um, the advice that you need um, and take the vaccine. I went through it with my kids. Right? They're 22, 20 and 18. So they're all adults. They can make their own decision. And they did. We talked about a lot, gave them my view, um, asked them to go and talk to their friends in other parts of the world as to what they um, took. And uh, they eventually decided that they were going to take it. And they did. That's the first step. The second step now is reliant on government to come and help business because it shouldn't be up to business to, to determine whether their parameter or their setting is going to need to be double vaxxed to enable people to come in. And there's a couple of reasons for that. The government has the ability through public health orders to make it easy for business to operate in environments where vaccinations are required. And I put it as simply as um, 
you know, when I was growing up, 14, 15, 16, I would have loved to have go and have a beer in the pub. But I was 14, 15, 16. I needed to be 18 to be able to have a beer. That's the rule. That's the law. Uh, and no matter how much I would have begged the publican, they were not going to serve me a beer. And that's where we need to be with vaccination as well. We need to make it easy on business to be able to rule in or rule out. The second thing, and it's we've sought advice on this uh, from the state, where does in industrial manslaughter play in relation to COVID? Because if COVID is ruled in, for industrial manslaughter litigation, then it's going to be difficult for any responsible officer of a company, whether it be CEO, CFO or director, to not bring in a mandate around double vaccination because that's probably the only way that you can stop um, or be shown to be absolutely protective um, of your staff in the event that one of your staff members caught COVID from somebody coming into the workplace and suffering the ultimate. So there's a bit to play out um, here, but I think it starts as business leaders actually doing that leading, saying, yes, we need to get there. We're, we're tucking in with a 70 and 80% and beyond because I think it needs to go beyond. Living that example, helping people get the information they need, and then as we're doing, working with the state to give us the guidance back in terms of, you know, we, we, we need the protection here through public health orders, and then we need the guidance in terms of industrial manslaughter. Even just the discussion about industrial manslaughter and other things, I'm sure they're things that you and your team are getting phone calls on every day as to what do we do with this thing? How are we going to approach this? That's not an easy thing to do. How, how do you balance that servicing your members and potentially their frustrations, and some of them can may well go outside the playbook. How do you balance that to still get the right outcome to have a, the right relationship with government? They're no different um, to all of us. I'm sure if you look back over the last 18 months, it would have been different days where we would have blown a fuse uh, individually. You know, my view is do it behind closed doors. You know, don't do it out in, in public. We're all going to let some steam off it at different points in time. We, we called the vaccination issue back in March um, of this year. Um, we, we said it would be, if not the biggest, one of the biggest issues of, of the year. That gives you a level of understanding of, of how far ahead we were thinking. Um, and it's played out that way. We, we've met with a number of business leaders, um, be it from small, medium and large businesses. Um, they've helped us inform a, a bigger view. We think there's you know, 20 odd issues in relation to that. And we've written to the state government and federal government about those um, issues as well. Um, when it comes to you know, people getting frustrated about it, uh, just ring me. Uh, I, I get it. Uh, and on Sunday afternoon, I took a uh, I, I took a number of calls, but was interesting. I had four very senior and respected uh, people that I respect just ring me, and and they got to the point of saying this is ridiculous um, and didn't hold back. And it's it's good. That's what. Through this, we need to you know, rely on each other uh, to get through. I need to know where they're coming from. And you know, I don't take any of this sort of stuff personally. I'm, I'm there to help and they know. And they, I'm, I'm grateful that they're comfortable enough to pick the phone up and ring and, and have a really difficult and sometimes um, robust conversation with me. Trust me, the politicians don't miss in that 
um, either. So I've had more than more than a, a handful of robust conversations along the journey, and that's it's just what it is. You know, there's everyone's trying to do the right thing. Everybody's trying to get to the right outcome, and and sometimes you just need to unload on somebody, and I'm I'm here for that as well. So you mentioned a few times early in the chat that Victorians have recovered from COVID lockdowns on several occasions. And you've also mentioned that you tend to take an optimistic view of what the state is capable of. Are you optimistic about the prospects going forward out of this latest lockdown or are you really, really concerned? Oh, I'm more concerned the more lockdowns we have. We, we, the tail of the tape will show that at every lockdown um, we, we drop off businesses. Um, and even this one, it's, you know, the financial support is there to an extent, but, you know, we, we're going around a monopoly board here, right? And and if you're lucky enough to get through the next week, you'll pick up, you know, somewhere from, you know, $2,000 to $20,000, depending on the size of your business. Um, but this ends the same way that monopoly does. There, there can only be one winner. Um and so if you imagine a series of, of monopoly games going around the state, not all businesses are going to make it through because the costs are now exceeding the government support that is coming in. We weren't meant to be locked down for this long. There'll be businesses that will be making decisions around, we're not coming back, we're going to survive while the handouts are there, we might trade through Christmas and then we're going to throw it in um, after that. It's got too difficult for some, whether it's physically difficult or whether it's emotionally difficult or whether it's just financially difficult, we know that that day is coming. Um, so what do we do about it? We spoke to the state um, and actually had that conversation with them. That is why the support is actually in place um, at the moment. Um, I speak to other industry organisations. We've done a lot with the Australian Hotels Association, Patty O'Sullivan um, here. Uh, we compare notes and it was Patty and I that went to the state to say we've got a problem in that there's no money in the kitty. They've exhausted their financial reserves. They've exhausted their emotional reserves. The state needs to stump up some cash to get businesses through as we go back into lockdown um, and then stump up some cash as we you know, go through restart again. And look, I, I you know, can't give uh, Minister Pakula, uh, Minister Pulford and Treasurer Palace enough credit and their departments for you know, listening to the concerns and putting different things in place at different times, you know, cash or mentoring programs as we, as we did about this time last year as well. And I'd extend that to Treasurer Frydenberg and, and his team as well in terms of the access and the, you know, the, the year that they've lent us and then the ability to act um, on that. But it's getting to the point of we've, we've got to come out of this sooner rather than later in order to give businesses a chance. You know, we're missing another, another event season when you think grand final and then spring carnival. So it's going to be difficult for that because they don't see anything until Boxing Day test maybe, Australian Open um, definitely. For the rest of us, it's about getting back and trading in a meaningful way before Christmas, and that's not just on the doorstep of Christmas. It, it's as long before we can so that people can start booking or can start planning, be it for a Christmas function or be it for a holiday in, in regional Victoria or wherever else you think you'll be able to go at that point in time. Then it's the longer-term view. So we, we had this view, and I've seen it um, before, where I talk about this strategic planning, being deliberate about where you're going. So we came up with this concept of the Victoria Summit. And the idea is, is quite simple. Where will Victoria be in a decade, two decades and three decades? And it was my view and we talked through the team that we agreed that if we're deliberate, we can get somewhere. 
Um, if we're not, we'll be like a river and we'll just take the path of least resistance depending on what's there at a particular time. If you want some examples of it, um, go and have a look at Singapore, which is 54 years old, I think it is. Uh, what that city's done, what that country's done in 54 years by being deliberate is incredible. And there's other examples of this. Geelong, for an example, um, is just remarkable what they've done by being deliberate. So we bought, I spoke to a few people I respect and I said, yep, yeah, good idea, we're in. Well, I haven't even thought of anything. Yeah, yeah, you'll think of it. Just pull it together and we'll be right. So what morphed out of a couple of conversations turned into the Victoria Summit. We put a reference group um, together and I was blown away by the support um, of, of people. And then you can jump on www.victoriasummit.com.au, have a look at the calibre of people in the, the reference uh, group and then have a look at the calibre of people in the working group to give you an understanding that these are the leaders of the state coming together in a collaborative sense and that they are truly the leaders of the state from all walks of life, from, you know, we've got uh, Luke Hilakari from Trades Hall, we've got you know, vice chancellors from a number of the universities there, you know, some of the doyens of industry, we've got Penny Fowler uh, from Herald and Weekly Times uh, on there as well, News Corp on there as well. And it is amazing that, that no one said no, everybody said, yes, we want to be a part of this and we want to contribute our time. Um, and it's, it's been remarkable seeing the collaboration come together from people that haven't met before, from people that we, you would say might have different views. Um, the, the conversations have been respectful but robust and we're starting to get to the point of we're getting some really nice ideas out of it. A really great endorsement. We've had both treasurers address us at the last public day. At the next public day in a couple of weeks, we've got four of the past five living premiers that will address the group on the day. So unfortunately, only um, Dennis thing can't be with us on the day, but you know, Jeff Kennett, Ted Bailey, Steve Brax and John Brumby are all going to address us in terms of what we should be thinking about as we look into the future. I'm very excited by that. One final thing, and you, you talked a little bit about before where things were fractured last year, and it feels like we're, in this week that we're talking, things are, are just a little bit fractured. How important, and I'm not just talking about a in, in the pandemic sense, but in a broader communication sense for an, an organisation like yours, how important is it to have a goal for people to go towards to get them on the one track? Yeah, it's fundamental, particularly right now. You know, today, yesterday, Sunday and yesterday probably felt as dark as we'd felt for the better part of 12 months. Um, and there are a couple of things that that happened, you know, certainly, you know, Saturday and the, the clashes with police, no one needs to see that. We don't want to see that. That's not our society. And, you know, there was some footage that I'll, I would think everybody would have seen um, yesterday. And then again, today, some protests. That's not our city. That's not our state. That's not where we want to be. But it talks to the the, the boiling point, I think, that people have got to in terms of we just want to get out of this. We don't want to be locked down um, anymore. We want to get back on with our lives. So having something to look forward to, um, I call it the North Star, is fundamentally important. And everyone's going to have a different one. My son's year 12. He just wants to get back to school to see his mates because he knows he's got three weeks left of his whole schooling life with his mates left. And if he missed, he's already missed so much, he, he wants to be able to see them and spend the last days at high school um, with them. I've got you know, staff that, that kids are at home. They know they've missed out on um, learning. We all want to get away. Some of us have been lucky enough to travel, be it locally or internationally. We all want to get away again. We're all craving for what we've lost 
Um, and we want to find a resemblance and we want an understanding of when we can get that back. And from a business perspective, we're at crisis points now. We don't want to be in this crisis. And the way we know to get out of it, we don't live on handouts. We go into business because we want to make a difference. We either want to make a product and sell it or have a service and, and provide that as well. We want to embrace customers. We want to embrace staff. And most of us have stopped from doing that right now. And we just want to get to the point of being able to do that. That's why the goalposts are so important because that's what we're shooting for. Thanks so much for joining us today, Paul. I wish you and businesses all the best and your constituents all the best over the next couple of months and uh, hoping there's an opportunity for us to have you in the Michaels and Alexander office in person at some point in the future. I look forward to that. Um, Jack, thanks for having me into you, Shannon. Thanks for having me as well. Our absolute pleasure. And if, you didn't, if you've enjoyed this conversation, stay tuned to your podcast feeds for our next episode about COVID-19 recovery with Jen Hewitt from the AFR, which will be out a few days after this one. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>